Hello and welcome to Meet the Researcher, where we meet staff from the Faculty of Sport, Health and Social Sciences at Solent University. This podcast is for anyone interested in research and the person behind the process. It's hosted by me, Dr Emma Mosley and Dr Mark Turner, where we take it in turns to chat to faculty members to get to know them and their research. We hope you enjoy. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to this episode of Meet the Researcher. Today we have Dr Connor Power on the podcast who is a lecturer in biomechanics here at Solent. Hi, Connor. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. So first question, uh, like everybody else, how did you get to where you are today? Uh, I've been trying to come up with a a shorter way of of saying this, so I do apologise. This is a bit of a convoluted one and not a typical route into research. So um, I was not great at school. Uh, I played sport and that's all I cared about, genuinely all I cared about. So um, I left school with like two GCSEs, that total. Um, and I was playing sport and I thought, you know, I'm going to make it, I'm going to be a millionaire and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and that obviously did not happen because it doesn't happen for anyone. And so um, I was trying to kind of figure things out between 16 and 21 and in that period of time I ended up coaching athletics I've always been uh, I used to sprint triple jump high jump and stuff and I started coaching um with my old club I was working with a few people and I seemed to be quite good at coaching triple jump so they paid me to do level one level two um coaching thing and I ended up taking well I said I did take him he did the work I just happened to coach him um, a guy called uh, Roy Constable, who was a fantastic uh, athlete, ended up on a scholarship to Brunel University. And in our time, he ended up becoming um, second in the country at English schools. And all the way through, I didn't know the term biomechanics. I had no idea what that was. But I was doing biomechanics with him in some format. So I'd bring down the cameras and I'd work on angles and, and um, take off angles and and. and um, and bits and pieces like this. And so that I kind of accidentally started doing biomechanics. And then I started talking to someone on a coaching course and he mentioned the words. I went searching for it and found Winchester University who did a course in you know, sports science and biomechanics. Um, but they wouldn't let me in because I only had three GCSEs, of course, because that's, <laughs> that's not what you need to get to university. So I ended up going to night school. Um, so I paid my way through night school, got the subsequent GCSEs that I needed um, and it turns out if you actually spend or if I instead of spending seven hours a day running around and doing sport I spend that you know with uh, even a, a second of that in a book I actually am not too stupid so it worked out quite well I came out with some good grades and went to university on like a part scholarship part um, I was at a class as an adult learner at the time so I was 21 years old so uh, you know, allowances were made for my lack of um, qualifications. But it, yeah, it turned out that I kind of took to it quite well. Um, and uh, yeah, started my undergrad. The master's came up in my final year. They said, we're going to do a master's at Winchester. And, and alongside this, I'd actually got a job um, as a lab tech at the university. Weirdly enough, uh, I know you've had James Wright on. I was his lab tech assistant. Right, okay. 
So the job post came up. I went for that. Um, he obviously subsequently left for Solent, and then so did I, weirdly. But um, so I was working under him. So I had my master's paid for. And during my master's, my dissertation was in movement quality and kind of looking at the thing called the FMS functional movement screen. And as I was coming to the end of it, someone from Winchester said, have you seen this PhD post at Southampton? Because it's perfect for you. It's almost like the progression of my dissertation. Applied for it, got it, and then started my PhD at Southampton um, with some absolute powerhouses of research, such as Maria Stokes, MBE, um, uh, Professor Joe Fallerfield from the Institute of Naval Medicine, and Martin Warner. And everything kind of cascaded from there, and then working at Solent afterwards as a lecturer and trying to continue that way. So, a bit of an odd route through, but everything kind of fitted time-wise. I never would have known that because knowing you, obviously, professionally as a colleague, I would never have known that you got GCSEs <laughs> leaving school, had to put yourself through night school. Like, that is incredible and, you know, shows real, like, resilience and, and hard work and to get to where you are today, which I think is a really nice story. And I think it's really nice for our students as well who might be in quite a similar position coming to university. Yeah, I, I do. I, I don't tend to talk about it too much, but... There is there are instances where I know it's going to help people, so I do mention it occasionally to students who are you know, struggling at, at a point. Um, I've been asked to go back and talk at my school, and I do double-check with them. I'm like, are you sure? Because <laughs> I'm basically going to tell them that you don't have to have good GCSEs, which is both good and it will demotivate some and it will motivate others, I suppose, in equal measure. But uh, it is what I did. wish I hadn't because it is harder. Still made... Yeah, still got hit, which is which is yeah, good. Absolutely. No, that's excellent. Um so thanks for sharing your journey. But now can you give me a fact about you that doesn't relate to research? Well, I suppose now I've given away that I only have now now four GCSEs actually. But um <laughs> uh, I was I was thinking about this last night, I was trying to come up with a with, with a cool one. Um so it's my my favourite thing is that um for for mine and my wife's honeymoon we, we went we did the uh, four day um, Machu Picchu hike. So I have I've been to Machu Picchu and I've been through the Sun Door, which is the most amazing four or five days ever. Um, yeah. It was absolutely just insane. So yeah, I've done. I've hiked Machu Picchu. That's awesome. What a good fact. Love that. So let's think more about like the what. So firstly, can you tell us what your research area is? So uh, broadly, it's movement quality. So kind of we all know what. Um, what running looks like, we'll know what swimming looks like, and so on. You, if you were to talk about a movement, you you have a picture in your head. You can put, and, and probably you can do it. But there are certain times where you see someone running, and it just looks almost objectively better or worse than than one another. One of my favourite examples is David Rodisha. He's an eight hundred meter world record holder, and he runs. It, he just looks different to everybody else. It's just almost infallible technique. And everyone behind him is like they're running through treacle and he just looks just, uh, it just it's, it's beautiful to watch. Um, but then when you go, well, okay, if people do run, cycle, swim, walk differently, is there a best way to do that? And then you get into this whole kind of muddy area of what the term best means. The way I look at it is not in a... Um, performance way is a, a health of the structures way. So your knee, for example, 
should only be able to do really two movements, which is flexion extension, which some could argue is one movement, just the other way around. So that's what your knee is allowed to do. And obviously your hip can do more, your shoulder can do more, elbow can do less and so on. But there's always laxity there. But we know that actually your knee can produce some torsion, some kind of lateral movement. But is that healthy? Is it unhealthy? And it's trying to look at, okay, can I make, can I help the athlete or the, and actually in my case, it's not athletes at all, it's military personnel, but can I help these people move in a way that's healthy for the structures around? Because we know that structures actually change depending on the input. So there's a term that I always say people should, should, um, should Google this. It's humoral retroversion baseball. And when you when you type those three words into Google, you come up with some images that are fairly disturbing, really, because it looks like the person's broken their arm while trying to throw a baseball. But what's actually happened is that through years and years of throwing, like overarm throwing, it's kind of a whip action. So your hand comes through last. So you kind of your hand stays behind your 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 humerus as it as it turns through only marginally, but it is a kind of whip action in the same way that a kick action would be the same, right? And but because your humerus is is out to the side, you actually end up kind of trying to twist your humerus every single time you throw, only a very really small amount. But when you're throwing at you know, 60, 70 miles an hour, and you're doing this in between the ages, we call it the maturation period, like six to sixteen, where your skeletal structure is still developing, you can actually make changes to it depending on the input. So you end up like rotating your arm backwards so your shoulder is doing the same thing but now instead of being able to go so if i were to i know this is not on camera but i'm doing this on <laughs> care um if you were to put your arm up as um so your humerus at 90 degrees at your shoulder at your elbow at 90 degrees and try and move your hand backwards towards the wall behind you you probably can't get much further than like your ear and then kind of if you would internally rotate it so your hips your hands down by your hip you can't get much further back than your back people with humor retroversion would have a 90 degrees rotation of that. So their, their furthest back they could go is horizontal with the floor. And the furthest forward they would go is horizontal with the floor. But their shoulder's doing exactly the same thing your, you, you know, yours is doing. Right. So it's actually the humerus that, that, is, that is twisted. And we know that this is an impact of throwing because their left arm or their non-throwing arm won't do this. Right. And so if we know that movement has an impact on your physical structures, then we, we need to be aware of that and use that, especially when we're talking about grassroots you know, uh, athletes or, again, in my case, military, to try and encourage good movement, to encourage like, good morphological maybe changes or, or stability within, the, within that joint so it, it doesn't change, mm. which hopefully is a good thing. So that, that's where I kind of work within, um, which is kind of a hard sell sometimes because people care about output quite a lot and i'm talking about you know, this this very very start initial input thing um but um yeah, that, yeah. That, that's kind of where i work i think that's obviously that's something that's hugely impactful across all aspects of life not just sport i know like if Absolutely. i think about my movement quality prior to doing my acl it was probably okay. really awful because i came to netball quite late um and then having gone through like the rehabilitation process, obviously to strengthen like muscles, retrain my movement and all this sort of stuff. My, I'd noticed so much about my movement that I never would have noticed before. So I think like I can particularly resonate with like retraining your body to make sure those like structures are looked after. Cause obviously when they do go 
wrong. Um, <laughs> and sometimes, obviously, yeah. it can be like the implications of that, not just for sport, but for everyday life can be quite serious. You are an athlete for a very short period of time. A very short period of time. And even when you are an athlete, if you were to take out the number of hours in a day where you, depending on how you class this, like are an athlete, right? And I know a lot of people say, you know, you are for the moment, you, know, you wake up, go to bed, you're an athlete. Ultimately, it's a very short period of time. And then after that, you then have to live with the ramifications of what happened when you were an athlete. And you, you, you see an awful lot of, you look at ex-professionals in whatever sport is now 20 years later, and they have you know, bad knee, you know, hip replacements, knee replacements, and so on. You're looking at swimmers, you know, shoulder issues, runners with knee and hip issues. There's kind of a race to the bottom with sport nowadays to try and get younger and younger people. So we're getting people specialising in swimming, for example, or gymnastics, or actually saying that, I, I don't mean to like highlight these individual sports, football do it, rugby do it, hospital do it, yeah, everyone's doing it. A 10-year-old boy or girl, has their skeleton structure is just not mature enough that if you start specialising, you are going to get these morphological changes, which some people say is great. You know, swimmers have broad shoulders for a reason, but then they also have the propensity to have kind of weaker shoulders later because their shoulder is now more um, more mobile. But we know with ball and socket joints, the more mobile your joint is, the more likely it is to to um to dislocate. So you have these issues and I think there's that there's a better balance to to be made and that's kind of where I'm trying to to move into. Yeah, definitely. So so on that, can you talk um about some of your current work that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I just about can, actually. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation now, not, not a month ago, because my research, like I said previously, is, is predominantly in military. Now, this is for a couple of reasons I will explain. But because of that, I haven't been allowed on site because of COVID. I haven't been, I haven't been allowed near the cobalt that I researched because of COVID for, for two years. And so it's only just kicking back up again now. But what's really lucky is that um, we were able to, a lot of my research is non-researcher kind of involved um, because it's the military. They, they need to be able to run it internally and run it like, themselves. So actually I go in and, and train and then take a step back. So there actually is quite a, lot of research, quite a lot of data for me to look at. Essentially, what I, uh, the reason I picked the military for kind of two reasons. Statistically, when you're trying to look at an incident, you want a high hit rate. And so you actually want a cohort with high injuries if you're trying to reduce injuries, which is kind of bad because I, I kind of joked at the start that I was hoping that people would get injured. Well, obviously, that's not the case. But the higher the injury rate, the better it is statistically for me to see whether or not an, uh, an intervention has had an impact. But um, but also, quite interestingly, um, females in the military has become this real kind of like, novel thing in, in, in recent years. Females in the military have been obviously a thing for years, but they've largely been in non-combat roles. So we're talking kind of medics, chefs, the kind of um, intelligence corps and so on. But in close ground combat, they have only just been allowed in. I always forget if it's 2014, 2016, but again, fairly recently is when they're actually allowed. And what we found was that actually the injury rates for females in that cohort was actually far higher than the males in that cohort, which like 75% more. Wow. And they're only constituting about 12, depending on 8 to 12 percent of that cohort, depending on which one it was, because obviously you have different ground, uh, ground-based combat troops. And this was obviously an issue. And 
that's not what you want to really hear where you go right fantastic we've made it accessible to everybody now we have this kind of or say we the, the military in this case i'm not military have a duty of care that you you can't just allow that to happen there has to be some investigation and some changes so that's why i was brought in and they were they asked me to come in and and, and obviously the team that i work with to come in and investigate this and so ultimately my work was to understand what the movement quality was like in the military you know, are they better or worse than the general population weirdly so i work with phase one and phase two military so it's the first 14 weeks and then up to a year of your first you know, your first year of military service depending on what troop you go into and ultimately in that first 14 weeks they are still classed as a subpopulation of the general population because there's no real difference between an 18 year old that's going into the military and an 18 year old going to university not not physically anyway i don't know what the differences would be but certainly from our test it looks exactly the same so it, it kind of a subpop and then you get to one year in and then then they are different and, and they have physiological differences in fear maxes and so on so at the very very start we're looking at just the general population which is good because then it means it's open to everybody at that point um, and we wanted to see what their movement quality was like it was exactly the same as everybody else's fine which is not great because <laughs> it's not very good and then essentially we wanted to look at uh, yeah we did a lab study looking at the effect of load or movement quality um we also obviously wanted to work out if a, a certain screen works so the hip lower movement screen is the one that i work with and it seems to be the one that's most robust uh, statistically um yeah proving to be very very useful and then looking at interventions try and see if we can actually modify movement quality is it something that's innate can we change it and then the big thing is okay if i can change movement quality by what i consider to be one point right depending on you know, what does that do to injury can I reduce injury by 1% with every one point or whatever? What is the actual outcome? And that's the bit we're at now. So we've done the screen works. Screen can identify difference between high and low scores. The screen is affected by load. So if we add you know, 20 kilos on someone's, well, actually, the specific 16 kilos, which is the phase one um, amounts you know, that, they, that they wear in their burgundies during, during um, tabs and marches, that then does affect movement quality. So, okay, fine. And then there's an intervention that can improve movement quality over the phase one. And now we're working with HMS Rally. So that, that, that those other papers were published in military journals. And HMS Rally, which is the biggest naval institute in the UK, contacted us and said, can we run this down there? Far more people over a year to try and see what actually happens to injury rates. Now, this is where we had to be a bit clever with the method actually because COVID hit at this point and so we couldn't split them uh, intervention and control because everyone was going through the same thing and it was because we know the intervention works it was then seen as unethical to put people through the old intervention the old warm-up if the new warm-up does work and so on so what we had to do is we had to age match and uh, time of year match to a previous cohort when they got injured and so on so we've got for every single person that went through the intervention we have someone else from uh the year prior or in some cases two year two years prior um uh yet to see what the injury rates were like in that cohort and those versus ours and so that's the data that we're going to be going through soon so we've got half the data i'm just waiting for the other half and um between me and i, I collaborate with 
Southampton still because I was doing my PhD there and yeah. they still work with Pivolo and movement screen. So in order to do that, I had to work with them. And we're going to go through the statistics and work that out. So hopefully we'll know very, very soon what a one point difference in movement screen change actually means Yeah, for injury, which is weird because it's just like total injury as well. It's not even like knee injury, it's total injury. So we'll see how useful that's going to be. But um, I'm quite confident. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, again, that sounds really interesting. And, you know, the, the thought of even just wearing a 16K backpack and then trying to do, you know, like a run or something like that, like the, the mechanics of someone's movement must change so much just by adding that. Absolutely. So you've got you've, so you've got the load immediately, which, you know, if anyone's ever like gained and lost weight, you know that that's that that is just an issue and then you've got the center of mass change which i don't think people really uh, really think is going to be an issue but it's huge so you end up your center of mass is so far further back that you then to compensate for this you move further forward which means that when you're whenever you're running you are more glute dominant Mm. and so if you're more glute dominant your glutes will fatigue quicker and you end up because your glutes are the only muscle that um or the the major muscle that look at your valgus varus knee movement they're kind of um, modify that and if your glutes get tired quicker they're fatigued you know, quicker you are going to see a greater um, variety in your virus and valgus knee movement it's clear that load and obviously like the center of mass has a real impact on how somebody moves and then subsequently injury but it sounds like you're really tapping into something that could be quite impactful um in terms of military health so in terms of the bigger picture, why do you do what you do? So, yeah, I think I'm still in that, like, because I'm quite an early researcher, so I only finished my PhD 18 months ago. I'm still in that naive scenario where I think I can make a difference. I, I, I think I can help. And um, if I can reduce, so, for example, the, the, the current... Um, current estimations are that if you can reduce injury rates in the military by one percent you're saving about ten and a half million pounds a year mm. and that's not just for the military that's for the people afterwards as well because of course these people again their military career is only up until a certain point and then they are back into civilian life again if they have a you know neck of femur fracture for example which is actually quite high so it's the as your femur comes up and goes into your pelvis there's a there's actually like a there's actually a little kind of attachment there which is about 45 degrees if you if you fracture that that's a serious injury and that is often caused by overuse and so you imagine in the military constant walking constant marching and carrying load and so on it's fairly common Uh, it's not common but fairly common you know more common than you'd like it to be that's a serious injury and if i can reduce those fantastic like that that's the ideal goal but yeah so i think i'm in that i think i haven't quite been you know crushed yet by by academia and i'm still in that i think i can make a difference i think i can think i can um improve just people's quality of life and whether or not that's in sport and that would be great as well because like i said they're sports people for a short period of time but they are people (laughs) for for their entire time um and in military again as well because yeah they have a duty of care in order to make sure that the people that are under their employment are what they give the best um interventions for those people so that they um 
yeah, so their quality of life after, during and afterwards so it's it is, it is as good as it can be. And if I can be a small part of that, then I'll be very, very happy. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Don't don't let that motivation <laughs> and, and passion stop you at all, because I think that's really lovely and, and refreshing to hear. So we always ask for a golden nugget um, from our research yes. staff. So uh, what piece of advice would you give to anyone interested in research? Right, so you actually made me get my old books out for this. So, so, so you know, um, for those listening, Emma did email me uh, some some questions, and so I was kind of half ready for this. So, during, so again, because I'm only eighteen months out of my PhD, I'm not going to tell researchers how to research. I'm still learning very much in in, in that area myself. So, I I literally wrote down. I'm showing Emma right now that, uh, all of these bits of information, that, these tips that I was given as I started my PhD, and I was going into like. The research world, because from masters to research, the world is different. Mm. It's you know, practical, you know, applied work in the masters, and you're and you're gaining more knowledge. And then research is bizarre because you're led and then let go, and then led and then let go, and and once a week you're kind of reined back in, but you're largely on your own. So um, I I've got I've got quite a lot uh, from very very good researchers. The the biggest one for me that I struggled with was the constantly not quite there. Every single time you progress, you then find out that there's something else that you can't do yet, or you think you are you know, you're becoming a better academic writer or you know, whatever aspect you're improving on, and then you hand it to your supervisor. Who also is trying to improve as well, like they're, they're, and it comes back dripping with red pain. You know, it just it looks like the, you know, the same as the first essay you ever handed in in, in your undergrad. Which, but you read your undergrad work, and it's genuinely embarrassing compared to what you're doing now. But now you're being caught up on like small kind of wording. You know, you're, it's, you're trying to be as accurate as you possibly can, so they're not quite there. Um, yeah, that was kind of my big thing, and so the way I got around that is that you are not the work you produce. Do not have your ego invested in the words that you write because with new information comes new opinions or that's the way it should be, right? So if I'm entire, if I'm proven entirely wrong, if my entire area was proven to be just not useful at all, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. I can't just hold on to it and be kind of, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not owned by it and I don't own it. So um, yeah, removing your ego from your work is very very useful and that is how I got around that anyway. I think that is a, a fantastic piece of advice because that is something that goes through your whole academic career <laughs> like you say you certainly don't get away from the uh, the red pen um, oh. or those those improvements I think it really resonates nicely with um, a talk that I went to ages ago now and someone had talked about their research journey and they said like doing your PhD is like climbing up a mountain and you get to the top and then you see all the other peaks that you then yeah. need to climb. And yes, yeah, so it's really hard to get to the top, but then there's still so much more to do once you kind of reach those different milestones. So I think that's a, a great yeah. piece of advice. Yeah. And everything keeps evolving as well. Like, so only 18 months ago, I, the work I was doing or the things I was able to do were, you know, were forefront. Yeah, it's really, really good. And now I realise that everything's moving towards kind of like coding-based stuff. And I, I can't code, or I'm not very good at coding. So now I'm realising that this peak has actually just been created next to me. So it wasn't even there beforehand. And now 
this is I'm like, oh, rubbish. So now we have to start engaging with that now. Um, yeah, so it's constantly evolving. Um, and the people next to you are constantly doing that as well. So if you start comparing yourself to the person next to you, you're never going to improve mm. because hopefully they're also improving as well. So it really is this, um, uh, yeah, look after your mental health if you go into research because it is, it's, it's can be very difficult. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, that's so great, Croner. Thank you. We're just going to move into the, the last little bit, which is the quick fire this or that questions. Um, okay. Most people struggle to do this quick fire, so let's give it a go. So you basically have to choose which one of these you prefer. You ready? Yeah, I'm sorry. Already. Okay. okay. Coffee or tea? Tea. Qualitative or quantitative? Uh, quantitative. Dogs or cats? I currently own a cat, so I'm going to say cat. Book or journal? Journals for me, though. Instagram or Twitter? I'm not on either. I can't. <laughs> Lit review or methodology? Uh, lit review. Chocolate or sweets? Chocolate. Undergrad or postgrad? Postgrad was much more fun. Winter or summer? Winter. Snowboarding all the time. Reading or writing? I love reading. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you so much, Connor, for, for coming on and, and sharing your wisdom and <laughs> your stories of your journey. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, catch up with you very soon.